14 months and counting since the last cruise ship set sail from an American port, it's a multi-billion dollar question for the South Florida economy. When will cruise ships set sail again with passengers? Are we ready to go? We're ready to go. Today on the Sunshine Economy, hear from the director of Port Miami on restarting cruises, plus how the boss of union dock workers awaits the return of travelers. We're the faces that start their vacation. I'm Tom Hudson. Also on today's program, a baker, banker, and cleaner in the pandemic economy. We're spending half a million in the build-out. For me, that's a huge endeavor. We've uh, booked $50 million worth of new loan business. That is a record. We are looking at doubling our revenue from 2019. It's all ahead on the Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. The Norwegian Jewel is almost 1,000 feet long. It's the namesake of the cruise company's Jewel class of cruise ships. It left Long Beach, California in April, sailing through the Panama Canal, docking at Port Miami on Friday. When it was built, it cost $400 million. It was christened in 2005 at Port Miami, where it is docked today. The ship can carry more than 2,300 passengers, plus another 1,100 crew members. The hull is painted with orange, red, purple ribbons, blowing like scarves from the bow. Jewels mimicked in the artwork. On board, there's the Bliss Ultra Lounge, the Stardust Theater, and the Sugarcane Mojito Bar. But those are all quiet. There are no paying passengers. There are no paying passengers on the Norwegian Jewel or any other cruise ship sailing from U.S. ports, and there haven't been for 14 months and counting. Hopes are building that the ships will set sail again soon. The first to shove off from an American shore may be from Port of Palm Beach. Bahamas Paradise Cruise Line has scheduled its first two-night cruise on July 2nd. The largest cruise operators are expected to follow. Two of Carnival Corporation's brands have scheduled cruises from Seattle and Alaska beginning in late July. Royal Caribbean also plans to launch its Alaskan sailing season in mid-July. Norwegian plans to start its Alaska cruises in August. The focus on the Pacific Northwest comes after Congress passed a law allowing cruise ships to sail directly from Washington State to Alaska without having to stop in Canada. For decades, cruise ships heading to Alaska had to visit Canada first or set sail from Canada. Canada has banned cruise ships until at least February. Before the ships shove off, though, they will need to get the Centers for Disease Control okay. The Norwegian Jewel is one of the ships the legislation would allow to sail between Seattle and Alaska without stopping in Canada. But for now, the ship is thousands of miles away at Port Miami. Normally, the port would be collecting tens of thousands of dollars every day that the ship was dockside, but those fees have been waived for more than a year. It's just one of the costs of closing down cruising because of COVID-19. It's been a long and rough trip for the industry since being shut down in mid-March of 2020. The virus was circulating on ships, and some ships were having tough times finding ports where they could let off passengers, some of whom may be carrying the germ. It led to the CDC to order the end of cruising for the time being. Then, seven months into the pandemic, the agency released its first framework for how the cruise industry could return to the water. 
that has been followed by two more updates, the most recent one coming in early May. The following day, Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings held its first quarter conference call, and CEO Frank Del Rio said this. Cruise ships have motors, propellers, and rudders, and God forbid we can't operate in the state of Florida for whatever reason, and there are other states that we, we do operate from, um, and we can operate from the Caribbean for, for ships that otherwise would have gone to Florida. We certainly hope it doesn't come to that. It was a proverbial shot across the bow over the state's ban on so-called vaccine passports. A new state law prohibits companies from requiring customers from showing proof that they've been vaccinated. Norwegian is requiring passengers and crews to be vaccinated on all its cruises through October 31st. One of the three publicly traded cruise operators was floating the idea that maybe it didn't have to set sail from the cruise ship capital of the world. This would be a total tragedy for our economy, for our workforce, for our community, the whole state of Florida. And I believe that this is a high-stakes game of chicken that is being played. This is Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava on WLRN's South Florida Roundup the day after the Norwegian CEO made his threat. Clearly, these cruise companies can go offshore to other places, and people will fly to take their cruises from there, and then we will be the losers. The warning from the Norwegian CEO made headlines and echoed the frustrations the cruise industry has been feeling for months about returning to business in the United States. It's a frustration Governor Ron DeSantis took the CDC to court over, suing the agency, arguing its rules for the cruise ship industry to restart are unfair. A federal judge has since sent that lawsuit into mediation. DeSantis did not take the Norwegian warning seriously. The major cruise lines, Norwegian's not one of the bigger ones, by the way. Um, cruise lines have been. This is the governor about 10 days ago. He may have dismissed Norwegian as, quote, not one of the bigger ones, but it is. It's the third largest cruise operator, no matter how you measure it, by market value, number of employees, number of ships. Number three, behind Carnival Corporation and Royal Caribbean. If one of the smaller ones says they somehow don't want, that niche will get filled in Florida. Norwegian is a $10 billion company with 3,300 land-based employees and 28 ships. It has about twice the number of ships than MSC, which started sailing from Miami eight years ago. Disney has four ships sailing from different ports. Virgin Voyages will have one ship when it starts cruising. At Port Miami, the cruising capital of the world, Juan Corilla heard the warning. I don't think that that was a threat. Corilla is the director of Port Miami what was and hopes to be again the busiest port in the world for cruise ships and passengers. Right. Uh, you know, if you're a CEO of a publicly traded company. You need to uh, make sure that your shareholders know that you're looking after their best interests. I mean, that's the number one responsibility of a CEO of a publicly traded company, right? You need to look out for the best interests of your shareholders. Torin Reagan was not shocked by the comment from the top executive at one of the three largest cruise operators. No, actually, I wasn't surprised. Reagan is the president of the International Longshoremen Association Local 1416, which work as porters for cruise ships. The frustration had been growing for 12, 13 months. We certainly don't want people flying to the Caribbean in other parts of the world to cruise when they can cruise out of Port Miami. And hundreds of millions of dollars have been invested in the port, building new terminals, including one for Norwegian. 
The county spent more than $260 million building the new terminal, which was finished last year. The public money was borrowed and came with guarantees of passenger fees paid over the next several decades. And that gives Carilla confidence that Port Miami will retain its title when cruising sets sail again. And I have to tell you, based on the contractual agreements that we have with the major cruise lines, based on the conversations that, that we've had with all the, the cruise line CEOs, I have no, no doubt in my mind that come fiscal 2022, we will still be the number one cruise port in the world. And in November, that is scheduled to include the Norwegian Jewel. Its first cruise with paying passengers is expected to be an 11-night journey to Colombia, Costa Rica, and Mexico before returning to Port Miami. It's one of the last Norwegian ships scheduled to return to service. Time will tell if there is as much fanfare then as when the Norwegian Jewel first set sail from Port Miami in the fall of 2005 and was christened by future First Lady Melania Trump. Still to come, the big question, when will cruise ships set sail from Miami? I like to say more like the billions and billions of dollar question now. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to our podcast by searching Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app. Thanks. It was pretty quiet last week outside Terminal B at Port Miami. The sun was shining, it was in the mid-80s, and there was a little more than a breeze blowing. Two ships were dockside, but there were no passengers bustling to board or get off at Terminal B. There have been no paying passengers on cruises in U.S. waters since March 2020, when the Centers for Disease Control ordered ships to stop in the effort to slow the spread of COVID-19. Two years ago, Port Miami hosted more than 6.5 million cruise passengers, a record. For more than a year, no passengers have been allowed to sail from Port Miami or any other American port. Seven months ago, the CDC released its rules for what cruise ships need to do to return to business. Some of the safety protocols have been criticized as onerous and confusing. The agency has since released additional guidance for training, testing, social distancing, screening, communicating, cleaning, and handling COVID-19 on board. Cruise ship operators are required to have a series of agreements in place with local health authorities and ports. Port Miami signed its first agreement two weeks ago with Royal Caribbean. According to a Facebook post by Royal Caribbean International CEO Michael Bailey, on Friday the company submitted what he called, quote, the first of several port health plans to the CDC, end quote. A spokesperson for Royal Caribbean International said the company submitted its agreement with Port Canaveral to the State Department of Health. It represents one of the steps necessary for the industry to restart and for workers and passengers to return to Port Miami. And it could fulfill Port Director Juan Carilla's wish that he shared with us when we spoke with him in January. We're hoping right, that the industry does come back this summer and uh, come back uh, gradually and eventually come back very strong. We returned to the port last week to speak with Carilla again and to ask the big question again. When will cruise ships be accepting passengers here at Port Miami? So that's a great question, right? That has been the uh, $64,000 question and and more, I like to say, more like the billions and billions of dollar question now for the industry, for the ports, for all of these communities 
that have been suffering the effects of the closure of the industry for the past 14 months. The industry, our local elected officials from, from every port, uh, have been working very uh, hard to see if we can have ships floating with passengers, with revenue passengers, this summer, uh, ideally uh, July of 2021. When we were last here about six months or so ago, you floated the idea that this summer, the summer of 2021, paying passengers would be back on Port Miami getting on and off cruise ships. What has given you that confidence as we've gotten closer to those summer months? So several things. I will say the primary one is the the success of the rollout of the vaccine here in the United States. Uh, The numbers of people that have been fully vaccinated, those that are partially vaccinated, that will be fully vaccinated over the next couple of weeks, and then the new the new ones that will be vaccinated by by the first of July uh, really provides a lot of comfort. Uh, they say safety in numbers, and uh, that there will be just tens, if not hundreds, of millions of uh, Americans fully vaccinated that will be able to get on a on a cruise ship. And then also, what we have learned, what we have learned about the virus, the science. Uh, the testing capabilities, the incredibly quick turnaround of the testing results that uh, can be implemented, whether it's the day before, the day of, uh, you get on a ship, and uh, also on the back end. So th- those those two issues, have, I really believe, have moved the needle substantially. And then also recent guidance uh, from the CDC uh, recent conversations that have been taking place uh, among the CDC, other government agencies, the White House, and of course, uh, representation from the cruise industry. What role is the port playing in those conversations between the industry and the Centers for Disease Control? So we, we're very engaged with the industry, uh, of course, preparing the memoranda of agreement that we have to uh, submit with each cruise line. We are, for every possible situation, uh, and showing the CDC that no matter uh, what that situation may or may not be in the future, and hopefully won't be in the future, uh, that we are prepared to handle any sort of outbreak, whether it's one passenger, whether it's 1% of the ship, 2% of the ship. Uh, We have experience now, and we did this 14 months ago uh, without having the benefit that we have now of really studying this issue for 14 months. I'm coming up with some incredible protocols, incredible plans, transportation plans, safety plans, uh, emergency plans, hospitalization plans to be prepared uh, in the event of anything uh, in the future. There is an incredible amount of progress uh, with uh, with these agreements and I was on a call with uh, DOT Secretary Kevin Tebow here from the state of Florida. Department of Transportation. Department of Transportation and and, uh, 14 uh, port directors. And uh, the cruise ports gave updates. And uh, uh, I'm very happy to to share with you that the other cruise ports in Florida are also very, very advanced in their uh, agreements with uh, their respective cruise lines, which are basically the same ones that are here in Port Miami. 
what are some of the protocols that have to be in place for the port operator for the cruise ships to begin accepting those passengers uh, potentially as early as the summer? Sure. Well, well, we need to show that we are prepared. We need to show that we have the the medical teams available. We need to show that uh, we have the law enforcement uh, teams available, the medical transport teams available. It shows the CDC that Miami-Dade County is ready to have cruises here at the Port of Miami in July. As a port operator, uh, when you have to have certain health care provisions in place, certain law enforcement provisions in place, what does that mean on the ground? What does that mean here on the island? So th- that means uh, a state of readiness that needs to be in place every single day, every single day, uh, whether we have cruise ships or not, right? When we don't have cruise ships, we have cargo ships. It means a, a tremendous amount of coordination and effort not just by the port employees, by the Miami-Dade County Seaport employees, but by, by all of the employees, not only Miami-Dade County Fire and Rescue, the police department and Office of Emergency Management, but also critical to the, the success of restarting cruise lines are the employees of the cruise lines, are these contractors of the cruise lines, are all of our stevedores, right, all of our taxi drivers, Uber drivers, grand transportation, baggage handlers, to everyone that is out there getting the gangways ready and getting the cruise terminals ready and those bathrooms spotless and comply with the new cleaning guidelines. And uh, everyone from maintenance to housekeeping to operations, my gosh, right? Amazing jobs. They are ready. They want the cruise ships back. Our security team, they want the cruise ships back. And, of course, our ILA. The union members. The union members from the International Longshoremen Association. How many cruise passengers will the port be prepared for when the final call comes down that cruising is back on in the United States? As part of the the MOAs that we're signing, we have a, a process of, of revamping, right? And uh, we, I want to say because of this incredible infrastructure, that we have already built in here at the port with our sister departments from Miami-Dade County, we we really haven't set a, a limit in terms of how many passengers can start week one, week two, week three. We can handle the ships. Every terminal is ready. We didn't lay off any people. So our full contingent of employees are here at the port. Uh, we're in constant communication with uh, all of our health agencies, with all of our federal agencies, with our medical facilities. Would you anticipate having a escalator of capacity for passengers? I think the cruise lines are going to start deploying in a in a measured manner. You know, if we were to start July 15, let's say, I still don't have a, a berthing schedule for July 15. But what I can tell you is that every single terminal at the Port of Miami will be ready to have a ship. Is the port ready today? We're ready today. We did not lay off anyone. Everybody is eager. And I think the port's finances will show that um, it was a very, very uh, successful operation to have uh, cruise ships here and uh, the staffing levels uh, that we had. But uh, are we ready to go? We're ready to go. You get paid to worry in your position, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. To worry and to plan. Yeah. Right, right. What are the risks 
that you could share with us about your expectations when it comes to the return of cruising? Well, I think I'm going to say that the risks that 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 exist maybe they're tied to overreactions. Uh, what do you mean by a, that? That's a great question because. You know, can something happen? Anything can happen. I mean, we wake up in the morning and we have a risk. No, you you take your car and you drive and you have a risk. Here, right, let's say that, you know, we do get a ship and let's say that there is a case, right? But maybe there's a case, but chances are, right, just look at the the numbers, right? You know, chances are that a lot of people have been vaccinated already that were on that ship. So when I say the overreaction that worries me is that, the folks might say, oh, there was a case, so I'm not going to go on a cruise because there was one case. The worry is you know, a, a potential overreaction, like, oh, the end of the world, when it's not going to be the end of the world. I think, you know, the, the cruise lines have taken extraordinary measures to ensure that every passenger is safe, to ensure that all crew members are safe, to ensure that all of their employees on the, on the land side were in transportation people are safe. Overreaction is uh, something that, you know, could cause a little concern, right? Particularly in the initial, with the initial savings, but I think time will address that. Speaking with Port Miami Director Juan Carrilla. Now still to come, the cruising impact on the port's public finances. We have budgeted about 3.8 million passengers, which is 50% of what we would be budgeting if there had not been a pandemic. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and for supporting public radio. Each cubic foot of space on board a cruise ship is worth 40.5 cents in taxes per day at Port Miami. If the ship is docked at the port with no passengers, there's a 50% discount. And for cruise ships subject to the Centers for Disease Control ban on sailing with passengers, which is all cruise ships in American waters, there's an 80% discount. These fees are just one way Port Miami generates revenue. They have been waived for more than a year, though, costing the port more than $19 million in lost taxes. The port is county property, and it has issued hundreds of millions of dollars in bonds to build new cruise line terminals, receiving minimum passenger guarantees from the cruise operators as a source of money in the years to come to pay for the borrowing costs. While the port's cargo business has been strong during the pandemic, the cruise side of the business had been responsible for just over half of the port's operating revenue before COVID-19. We spoke about the virus's impact on the port's finances with Director Juan Carrilla. Earlier this year, it was forecast that without cruising, the port would have to use its reserves to pay for ongoing operating expenses September-October timeframe of this year. Is that still in play? We would still need to use our, our operating uh, reserves this year. We're very, very fortunate that we went into the pandemic with about a $125 million reserve. If cruising comes back in the summer, will you still have to dip into reserves? It, it depends the volume of business that we get, right? 
if it comes back, let's say August, you know, fully in August and September, or at fifty percent, we'll have to dip into some uh, reserves. Although I have to tell you, we're we're very fortunate that uh, we are expecting, uh, you know, don't what's the saying? Don't count your chickens until they hatch. Right? That's the saying here in uh, in English, right? We are hoping to get some monies uh, through the state from the federal pa- uh, federal relief package that would. When we were hearing, we'll, the number would close that gap and then some. But but if we didn't, but we hope we do. But if we didn't, we would need to probably tap into our reserves uh, somewhat. But but then again, we went into twenty twenty one into fiscal twenty one with about one hundred and seventeen million dollars of reserves. What's the worst case scenario about that dip into reserves? What's your modeling tell you? Worst case scenario that if we don't get any funding uh, from the Fed through the state, probably a $25 million dip, 25 to 30. Now, that could be you know mitigated, again, uh, if the interest rates on the variable debt stay as low as they have been. And um, cargo, though, continues to be very strong. And uh, so there is some play. So if I say 22 to 28, that's also a number that could that could stick. But but nonetheless, we will move on to 2022 with a reserve very close to $95 million, which is very, very strong. The fees that the port generates from the cruise side of the business uh, come from the fees that are charged to the cruise lines to bring the ships in. Uh, those fees have been waived for better part of the year now. What's What does that outlook look like? How How quickly can those fees be put back in place once cruising returns? Yeah, so it's a couple of things. Right? One are the, the fees that have been waived are the late birth fees. And those are the, the fees that you charge when a ship comes onto a port with no passengers or no cargo, maybe to do maintenance, maybe to lay up, maybe to do whatever that ship needs to do that is not a revenue-generating activity. Those fees have been waived from day one uh, of the pandemic, and uh, I believe the mayor has it now through May 31, and then uh, I will have a, a recommendation for the mayor for whatever is her pleasure beyond uh, May 31st, right? Now, the other fees are the regular fees that cruise ships have when they are coming in with revenue passengers. Every line has a guaranteed, uh, pretty much a guaranteed berth. Uh, every line has an operating agreement with the port where we do have MAGs, minimum annual guarantees, right. Those have been waived until the industry gets back on its feet, or I want to say just out of memory, June of 2022, right? Then we start again. No, we have budgeted fiscal 21 through September 30th, assuming zero revenue from the cruise lines, and that is what would generate a, uh, let's say, a 22 to 28 dip into the reserves. So that is budgeted. That is something that, you know, if it, happens, well, we're ready for it. Now, we are hoping, keeping our fingers crossed, that we have some sort of activity this fiscal year as early as July. Those minimum guarantees by the cruise operators have been important for financial planning, certainly for the county and for the port. How do you anticipate coming back to those when cruising returns? So I think it'll, it, it might take a few uh, a few months, maybe, you know, maybe a year, right, to get to those numbers. Uh, just to give you an idea, for fiscal twenty. Two, which begins October 1, right, right of 2021, 
we have budgeted about 3.8 million passengers, which is 50% of what we would be budgeting if there had not been a pandemic, right? So we're, I think we're being conservative, right? Uh, that is what we are budgeting. We like to budget very conservatively. That's the number that we're going to our rating agencies with to show that we will be in the black come in 2022. I'm, I'm really thinking that uh, it could be much greater than that. I've tried to figure out how best to describe the port in this push and pull debate and conversation between the cruise industry and the CDC regarding the conditional sale orders. It, not exactly a bystander in this, but an interested party, but yet one that has has been involved in the conversation. You've been in this industry for 30 years. How do you hear this conversation? How, how have you heard it evolve over the past couple of months or, or even couple of weeks given its importance to the local economy here in South Florida. Yeah, it, it has been a, a an evolving dialogue, no no question, right? And we we can't forget that the CDC is the regulatory agency of the cruise industry, will continue to be the regulatory agency of the cruise industry, yet they have an immense challenge which is to keep the country safe. Uh with, with the CDC, I think over the last couple of months we have seen a great great progress, great progress and uh, some very good dialogue uh, between the CDC and the cruise industry. And, of course, we have let uh, the CDC know our concerns, our intentions, uh, as it relates to the halt of the cruise industry. Do you think those were listened to early on? I think so. I think that uh, as of the last couple of months, uh, there's been a, a great dialogue with, with the CDC uh, and uh I want to say sometime in March, our, our mayor, uh, Daniela uh, Levine-Cava, she uh, sent a, a letter to Dr. Rochelle Walensky and uh, asking for a meeting to express uh, her concerns with uh, the cruise uh, halt here in Miami-Dade County. And, and, and that is something that uh, began some great uh, conversations uh, here. And uh, the cruise industry loved that and followed followed on that and and conversations have started to really, really show that we may have a solution very, very quickly. It is not a partisan issue. This is both, right? It's a bipartisan issue. Let's get the jobs back in Miami-Dade County. Let's get the jobs back in Florida, right? You name it, there, there is cruise activity going on. Whether you have a port or not, the cruise industry affects just about every, if not every state in the nation. There is a business. There is a factory that is producing products, selling products to the cruise industry. No state has more riding on the cruise industry and its return than Florida. Speaking with Port Miami Director Juan Carrilla last week. Now, still to come, the union boss of dock workers on the wait for the return of cruise passengers. We're the faces that start their vacation. That's critically important to us that we're able to maintain that interaction. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. Torin Reagan is in the family business. My father just recently retired after about 46 years of being a longshoreman. I had a first cousin that did about 47 years as a longshoreman, an uncle over 35 years as a longshoreman. And right now I currently have about 
30 family members that are longshoremen, so it's in my blood. Reagan is the president of the International Longshoremen's Association, Local 1416, which works on Port Miami. He started with the union when he was 18, working part-time with cruise ships. That was in the 1990s. They were a lot smaller back then, you know, 27, 2,800 passengers for the most part. The ships are a lot bigger now, three, four, five, six thousand passengers and crew members, if they were sailing with passengers. They're not. The industry has been docked for 14 months and counting. That has meant a lot less work for the union members Reagan represents. It's been a challenge. It's been it's been a huge challenge. It's been the biggest one that I can remember facing uh, since joining the union back in 1995. You know, we've never faced anything like this. It's affected our members, their ability to earn and provide for their family tremendously. Uh, we went from 90,000 man hours in January of 2020 to about 4,000 man hours in January of 2021 on our passenger operations. You can't, I can't put it, it's hard to put into words to describe just how enormous the effect has been on our labor force. How has the union prepared for the return of cruise passengers expected perhaps as soon as next month? We're preparing our members to be as fluid as possible to stay in line with the CDC guidelines because, you know, as we know, those those seem to change from, you know, from one week to the next, you know, depending on, on what's going on. So we want to make sure that we do our part in, in maintaining public health and public safety. Uh, but at the same time, we're, we're chopping at the bit and we're ready to get back to work. How many jobs are on the line when cruise ships return again? If we're talking about, you know, getting back to 2019 numbers, um, which obviously won't be done immediately, but we, we look forward to getting back to those numbers. Those were record numbers back then. They were record numbers, and the port, along with the cruise ship companies, have made tremendous investments in Port Miami to be able to sustain and grow those numbers. So, so we look forward to those numbers returning in 2022. But for the very near future, we just been as flexible as possible. We're, we're extremely excited about being able to get back to work, and um, you know, we, we're talking about maybe on a weekend, right? So you may have anywhere from 700 to 1,200 jobs in just one weekend when you have six or seven cruise ships lined up going over Miami Beach and you see those cruise ships lined up, those are a lot of a lot of workers, a lot of man hours, and, and, and it's a big, big part of what we do. Have you been led to believe you could see that number of jobs bounce back July if the cruises start sailing again? We probably won't see those numbers immediately. So from what I'm hearing, the CDC is either – asking if these lines are going to cruise at capacity to have, you know, 95% of uh, passengers vaccinated and 98% of crew vaccinated, or they can do test cruises where the numbers aren't that stringent. So, you know, it's still unclear as to which lines will take which option, but regardless, we won't see 2019 numbers. At least we don't project them until maybe the winter or, or the, the fall or the spring of 2022. What does the union think about vaccinations for a ship's crew and for passengers? We encourage vaccination amongst our members. It hasn't been mandated, um, but we encourage it. And you know, I'll tell anybody who's willing to listen that the ILA, if, if the difference between cruising and not cruising is vaccination, the ILA would not stand in the way of cruising. It's just too important to what we do. We recognize that this issue has you know, been politicized by some and we want to stay away from that. We just want to do what's in the best interest of the public health-wise, and uh, we want to be able to do our part.
has the union discussed uh, mandating vaccinations for its members working at the port? At this point, I don't think anything's off the table, but the guidelines that were presented to the cruise lines may change because of the new guidelines that are, that the CDC issued now. So it's a fluid situation. It's being discussed. All options are on the table. How has the union been involved in working on these protocols, either with the Centers for Disease Control or with your partners at Port Miami, the cruise ships and others? Well, over the last eight, nine months, I've been on countless Zoom calls and conferences with with CLIA, you know, the cruise line industry. That's the lobbying group for the cruise line industry. Right, right, right. right. And I've had direct contact with, with the principals of pretty much every major cruise line that cruises out of Port Miami. I've had conversations with congressmen, congresswomen, representatives from the Biden White House. So, so it's been a collaborative effort on just trying to get down to what's not only where the science leads, but also what's practical and what could be done to, to get people back to cruising safely. So we've been a part of all of those conversations. And Torrin, take us into those conversations, if you would, please. And beyond the economic impact, beyond the jobs, which are key and so important. Uh, Talk to us about how the union has added its voice to the considerations around science and protocols as the uh, Centers for Disease Control has been brought under extreme scrutiny uh, for not acting fast enough, some will argue, in terms of uh, the cruise ships. And others will point to the cruise ships as places that were, of course, early incubators of this virus and carried the virus in those early days and early months. It's, it's a lot of moving parts that go into, you know, to, to all of these things. But we prefer to take the view that maybe now cruise ships and cruising could possibly be one of the safest modes of travel and vacation that you can imagine with all of the testing, with the vaccinations being done. Economically, it hasn't just affected the cruise industry, but all of the other ancillary industries that come with travel to Miami, you know, the, the restaurant industry, the hotel industry, the taxi cabs, the Uber drivers, the all forms of tourism ha- has been affected. And we're on the front lines of it as the longshoremen. We experienced it firsthand. And um, while it's a delicate balance between maintaining public health, but also not destroying the industry at the same time. How much interaction is there between your union members and passengers or crew of a cruise ship? Uh, Not much interaction with crew, but passengers, we are basically the the first faces uh, outside, you know, once they leave the airport or once they, you know, if if they're driving from the Midwest or or from the North and they they arrive at Port Miami, a longshoreman is typically the first one to greet them to make sure that they have the proper documentation, make sure that they have the medication, make sure that their bags are tagged properly. We're the faces that start their vacation. It is an interaction there. We certainly don't want to lose that human touch, that that human interaction to get these guests, you know, ready to enjoy a five, six or seven day cruise. And uh, when they get off, we want to welcome them back home. And so that's critically important to us that we're able to maintain that interaction. That's Torrin Reagan. He is the president of the International Longshoremen's Association, Local 1416. It has almost 800 members who work at Port Miami. Before the pandemic, just over half of its members worked on the cruise side as porters and other positions. Starting wage, $20 an hour. Still to come, a baker, banker, and cleaner getting along in the pandemic economy. We're spending half a million in the build-out. For me, that's a huge endeavor. We've uh, booked $50 million worth of new loan business. 
that is a record. We are looking at doubling our revenue from 2019. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. Throughout the pandemic economic recovery, we've been hearing from three businesswomen in South Florida most weeks here on the program. A baker, banker, and cleaner have been sharing their opportunities and challenges as they work to expand their businesses, and they are expanding. Pilar Guzman Zavala runs Half Moon Empanadas. She has been trying to open a new location in Pembroke Pines for months, but she's had to delay it because she couldn't find enough workers. At the same time, she's been working to expand the company in other ways. It was a good week. A lot of Things in the kitchen are starting to stabilize in the sense of people. Uh, we're now focusing on opening Pembroke Pines <laughs> for six months. <laughs> so the exciting thing was that we started construction for the new kitchen in Little Haiti. Yes, it's a new USDA facility that we're building so that we can have frozen empanadas there and ship across the country. We're spending half a million in the build-out, and we're spending about two sixty thousand in equipment. So it's huge for me. That's a huge endeavor. We're financing the whole thing. We work ourselves to get to this place where a bank will feel comfortable with lending us that money. From buying the building, financing the building, then getting the funds to you know do the build-out and getting the funds for the equipment, and then making the plans of, you know, the whole layout and equipment of a kitchen. My husband did all of that, honestly. I've taken over the construction part, you know, kind of the execution. And at the same time, we got confirmation of a client for airports that's going to be ordering July 1st. Our product as a initial test, it's a big concessionary that has like 10 airports in the country. They want to start carrying the product as an add-on inside of two of the cafes in Seattle airport. We would do like a license, but just product agreement contract. I've been for eight months also working on the distribution piece. So it's finally coming into, into a place where I can see the product moving. <laughs> it's kind of a scary too, you know, it's like, oh my gosh. It's like, when am I going to stop questioning myself? Right? Like I, I was thinking that the other day while I was running, I'm like, you got to stop questioning Pilar, you know, like I tell myself, and then I'm like, no, but that's how you improve. And so, and I'm like, just make peace with the fact that you're always going to have doubts. Right. And so, yes, I am excited, um, but it's also scary. I'm like, I hope it, it works out. It could be a big thing for us. You know, it's good. I, I think now it's, you know, I'm looking at all of those retail Miami, the airport strategy, the frozen product, which will go to the digital space, more direct consumer sales. It's a lot of pieces, right? And so now it's like, okay, do we want to do all of that? Is one way going to be the, the best way to go? This is a year to kind of be defining the path. Pilar Guzman Zavala with Half Moon and Banadas. When we caught up with American National Bank CEO Ginger Martin late last week, she was pumped. From 9 o'clock before noon, I had just three new exciting prospects from a, from a lending standpoint, and then a fourth one from a significant deposit uh, potential customer that was really moving down from New Jersey and 
New York and wanted to be dealing with a local bank, and he had just bought a new house on uh, Las Olas Isles from one of our uh, customers that's uh, sending that waste. And then I had a board meeting in year to date. You figure we're not quite at the end of May yet, the first five months, and we've uh, booked $50 million worth of new loan business. That is a record for us at this time of year. And one more thing. <laughs> now you can see why I said I was excited. I think I told you in one of our calls um, that we had one problem loan. It was in the $4 million range. It was like a, a vacation a rental type property, beautiful property down on uh, Los Olas Isles. And we had to put it on non-accrual. We had to reverse all the interest that we had accrued on that and not been paid for and stop accruing interest. So in other words, that $4 million, bam, became a non-earning asset on the bank's books. Well, a week ago, that uh, customer was able to sell that property and actually sold it for a couple of million dollars more than the loan balance. And so we recouped um, the interest that we had reversed and plus got to get the interest that we would earn. So that was like over $200,000 that we got. And so I'm going, wow, thank goodness, because of the strength of the Fort Lauderdale real estate market, foreclosing on loans is not something we want to do. We, we don't bank loans to foreclose on loans. We make loans to get paid back on loans. That's Ginger Martin with American National Bank in Broward County. Sherry Rudolph owns and runs Legally Clean, and for weeks she's been getting busier and busier with more and more jobs. <laughs> and that is continuing. We're able to put in some really good bids with Broward County. We also have a uh, production um, meat company that we're looking at bidding on, as well as a group home, another group home. And so we're looking at really, really positive. I've been doing some uh, walkthroughs, in fact, did a, a post-construction walkthrough for a resident, really turning positive into a really, really great opportunity for uh, Legally Clean. I'm managing, hanging on by a nail, but we're able, the staff I have and myself, we're able to manage the companies that are needing our services. Six months ago, it was pretty pathetic, to be honest. <laughs> um, you know, we were not doing uh, very much work. We were doing some disinfections and some uh, construction cleaning, but not much of anything else. And now it seems that the tide has turned and we are looking at actually doubling our revenue from 2019. I'm very proud of my team and what we've been able to achieve and how we've been able to direct our efforts and create a positive outcome, even though we've been um, short on some staff, but we've still been able to make it work. We do have opportunities for cleaning every day next week. Uh, that includes commercial as well as post-construction opportunities. Next several months, I plan to get certified with the state of Florida and also Palm Beach County. I am certified with uh, Broward County, they have a huge uh, janitorial bid that is open for small and large companies. Uh, I am bidding on that uh, opportunity deadline is on Tuesday. There are many 
construction contracting companies that are out there that can help you to grow your businesses. And they're always looking for contractors to do various types of work. Those are some of the contractors that I'll be using to expand and grow my business this summer. I meet with other small business women who are just starting in the cleaning businesses and we meet uh, for for breakfast on a, a weekly basis where I share with them information and strategies on post-construction cleaning, um, certifications. There's enough work for everybody. I mean, really, I mean, Florida, in terms of the growth that is happening here, there's construction everywhere from residential to commercial to you know, to, to public and private uh, buildings. So I just think there's enough work for everybody and you don't need to hold back information or be negative or not invite people in because there's enough work for everybody. Sherry Rudolph with Legally Clean, a janitorial services company based in Lauder Hill, the cleaner of the Baker Banker Cleaner trio of women who we've heard from most weeks here on the Sunshine Economy. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.